0: Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 29th day of October 2017. She was only 14. Her mother was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. One night, she grabbed a sharp knife from the kitchen, ran upstairs, and came face to face with her mom's abusive boyfriend. Today, we have the story of Lana Turner, her daughter, a gangster, and a future James Bond on the 137th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Welcome back! It seems like it's been, well, forever since last we talked. I apologize for not having a show two weeks ago. It's because, well, life. I've talked about this before, but every year, at this time, I make a short comedy horror film or two to be shown during a Halloween celebration in Elgin, Illinois, We do this to raise money for an animal shelter. This year we only made one film. It was something I wrote called The Elgin Dead, a comedy about zombies. It's on YouTube if you want to see it. I'll have a link to it in today's show notes. Anyway, we got a very late start making this, and we only had two weekends, or about four days, to film the whole thing. And if you've ever been involved in a production with a lot of actors and a lot of locations... Four days is not a lot of time to shoot a 25-minute epic. And I had to edit the film within a week after the last day of filming. And on top of that, a few big projects from work came by. So something had to be sacrificed, and unfortunately, that was Coffee with Jeff. I toyed with the idea of replaying an old show, possibly adding a new intro and outro, that type of thing, but I changed my mind. The good news is I don't plan on making this a habit. I'm going to tell you about another podcast, but I'm going to wait to the end of the show. This podcast deals with the same subject matter I'm dealing with, and although I haven't listened to this particular episode, I'm sure it's a lot better than my version. Now, before I get started, I'm going to ask you a favor. If you could, after the show, go over to iTunes and leave a small review or a few stars for Coffee with Jeff. I mean, it would only take a minute and it would really help. iTunes uses those reviews for how it ranks the show, and, well, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into this. Autumn has finally arrived here in Chicago. It's beginning to get cold, and I haven't touched my yard or raked a leaf in weeks, so I'm going to have to get out there and brave the weather to take care of a few things, so I need to get this show going, so now, how about a true Hollywood murder story?
1: This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. It was much later that I learned a dear friend came to me and said, just a minute, young lady, you better hear who you've been dating and seeing. And I said, well, John Steele. And he said, no, 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 no. That is Johnny Stompanato. Well, I had heard the name thrown around in Hollywood, and he was a hood, a mobster. So I accused my friend of lying, of which I should not have done, and he brought me definite proof. So by that time, I was... A little far into the affair, that's what it was.
0: Let's begin with our cast of characters for today's story. The star of the story is the beautiful American actress Lana Turner. Turner began acting in films in 1937 at the age of 16 and had a nearly 50-year career in show business. Next, we have her daughter Cheryl Crane that Lana had with her second husband, Stephen Crane. Sean Connery, the actor who was still four years away from playing James Bond as part of the tale. And the last one, our murder victim, Johnny Stampinato, a former United States Marine who became a bodyguard and enforcer for gangster Mickey Cohen and the Cohen crime family. Our story takes place on April 4th, 1958. That's the day that Stampanato would be stabbed to death. But before we get into that, how about a little background? Lana Turner was born Julia Jean Turner on February 8th, 1921 in the small mining town of Wallace, Ohio. Judy, as she was called then, expressed an interest in acting at a very young age. She was an only child, and before the age of six, due to hard times, her family moved to San Francisco, California, Soon after the move, her parents were divorced. When she was nine years old, her father won a large amount of money in a crap game, but he was robbed and killed for the cash as he headed home. His murder was never solved. For a while, she attended the Convent of the Immaculate Conception in San Francisco, hoping to become a nun in her adulthood. Her childhood was a very troubled one. She lived in poverty, sometimes with her mother and sometimes with friends. The two moved to Los Angeles in 1936, hoping the drier climate would help her mother's respiratory problems. Now this was the golden age of Hollywood, a time when many pretty young girls would dream of being discovered by a producer or director. They would fantasize that One of these important people would stop by their small town to get gas or something and and go to the local soda shop for a bit. And there he would spot the most beautiful creature he had ever seen sitting at the counter. He wouldn't be able to take his eyes off her. He would tell her, I'm going to make you a star, and off to Hollywood they would go. It sounds like a fantasy that would only happen in the movies, yet that's just what happened to Judy Turner. It's a story that has become a show business legend. Now, the exact story has a few variations, but it goes something like this. When Turner, at the age of 16, was a junior at Hollywood High School, she skipped typing class one day and headed out to the Top Hat Malt Shop. She was having a Coke when she was spotted by William R. Wilkerson, a publisher of the Hollywood Reporter. Wilkerson was instantly attracted to her by her beauty and physique, and after talking to her mother, he referred her to Zeppo Marx. Zeppo, of course, was once part of the four Marx brothers, but who had left the comedy group after Duck Soup to become a talent agent. Zeppo introduced her to film director... Mervyn Leroy who signed her to a fifty dollar weekly contract with Warner Brothers on february twenty second nineteen thirty seven It was Leroy who suggested she changed her name to Lana after some small roles in a few films for Warner Brothers. She signed a deal for a hundred dollars a week with m g m during this time, she was known as the Sweater Girl from the form-fitting outfit she wore in a scene from a film called They Won't Forget. She hated that nickname. At MGM, she was set to have her first starring role in the film The Sea Wolf with Clark Gable, but after that project was put on hold, she was given a part in Love Finds Andy Hardy, playing along with then-teen idol Mickey Rooney. In the film, she played a flirtatious girl so well that it convinced Louis B. Mayer that Turner could be the next Jean Harlow. Harlow had been a Hollywood sex symbol with the nicknames The Blonde Bombshell and The Platinum Blonde. She had passed away about six months before this. And Lana would become just that, a Hollywood sex goddess, starring in films such as Dramatic School, These Glamour Girls, and Dancing Co-eds. But by the early 1940s, she began moving into more serious roles. Her most famous roles were probably The Postman Always Rings Twice in 1946, as she perhaps plays the first femme fatale, as she teams up with John Garfield to kill her husband in what they hope would be the perfect murder. And then there was The Bad and the Beautiful in 1952, in which she played opposite Kurt Douglas. By this time, she had been married twice. First to the American clarinetist, composer, bandleader, and actor Artie Shaw. This has been described as a stormy and verbally abusive relationship, and Turner called it my college education. It lasted only four months. Two years later, in 1942, she met married American actor and restaurateur Steve Crane. The problem with this marriage was that Crane wasn't yet divorced from his first wife. And soon after Turner discovered this, she quickly had the marriage annulled. Then, shortly after, she found out she was pregnant. So as soon as Crane's divorce from his previous wife became official, Turner and Crane remarried. This whole thing, of course, was sensationalized in the gossip columns of the time and threatened to end Lana's career. The marriage lasted only about a year, but the two had a daughter, Cheryl Crane, who was born on July 5, 1943. This scandal wouldn't hurt Lana Turner's career, and she would continue with great success, both critically and financially. In 1948, she married Bob Topping, brother of New York Yankees owner Dan Topping, and the two would be divorced four years later. In 1953, she married Lex Barker, and that marriage lasted until 1957. The story of this marriage is both sad and disturbing. In Cheryl Crane's memoirs, she stated that Barker molested and raped her. When she informed her mother, Lana Turner, of this, She kicked him out of the house at gunpoint and immediately filed for divorce. Good for her. It was about this time she met Johnny Stappanato. Stappanato was born to an Italian family in Woodstock, Illinois. You might know Woodstock, Illinois as a place where Harold Ramis' Groundhog Day was filmed. It's actually not too far from where I live, but that has nothing to do with today's story. In 1942, he graduated from high school and then joined the U.S. Marines. He was discharged in 1946. For a while after, he had a wife and a son and worked as a bread salesman before his wife walked out on him. After that, he moved to Hollywood, California. In Los Angeles, Stampinato worked and managed the Myrtlewood Gift Shop selling inexpensive pieces of crude pottery and wood carvings is fine art. He also, somehow, allegedly got involved with the L.A. underworld, becoming a bodyguard for gangster Mickey Cohen, as well as becoming an enforcer for his crime family. There is a Hollywood story that Frank Sinatra went to Mickey Cohen asking him to tell Stampanato to stay away from actress Ava Gardner, a beautiful star that the married Sinatra had a thing for. Apparently, Cohen told Sinatra to go back to his wife and children because he never gets between men and their broads. Stampanato would be married twice more before meeting Turner, first to Helen Gilbert, who said of Stampanato after their divorce... He had no means. I did what I could to support him. In 1952, he met and married Helen Staley, a former 20th Century Fox contract player. That marriage lasted for about two years. During this time, he was arrested seven times by the LAPD on various criminal charges ranging from vagrancy to suspicion of robbery. When Lana Turner, who was now in her late thirties, first met Stampanato, he lied about who he was, calling himself Johnny Steele. He was handsome and generous, showering the star with all kinds of presents that made her feel young and beautiful. But when Turner discovered his ties to the underworld, she attempted to end the affair, after all, she was a movie star and had already gone through a string of bad publicity with her marriage to Steve Crane, which had threatened to end her career. But Stampanato wouldn't have it. So over the next year or so, the relationship continued with violent arguments, physical abuse, and repeated reconciliations. Turner's daughter Cheryl described him as Be picture good looks thick-set, powerfully built, and soft-spoken, and talked in short sentences to cover up a poor grasp of grammar and spoke in a deep baritone voice. With friends, he seldom smiled or laughed out loud, but always seemed coiled, holding himself in. He had watchful hooded eyes that took in more than he wanted anyone to notice. His wardrobe on a daily basis consisted of roomy draped slacks a silver-buckled shiny leather belt, and lizard shoes. In the fall of 1957, Lana Turner was making a film in England with pre-James Bond Sean Connery called Another Time, Another Place. Connery was pretty new to movies at this time, having appeared in only a handful of TV appearances and a couple of films. During production... Turner was having a difficult time and feeling very lonely, so she invited Stampinato to the set. What started as a happy meeting turned to fighting, and after that, Turner refused to let him back on the set. At some point, Stampinato choked Turner so badly she had to miss three weeks of filming. Things got so bad that Turner and her makeup man, Del Armstrong, called Scotland Yard in order to have Stampinato deported back to the United States. When Stampinato found out, he became furious. He was also suspicious of why he was not allowed to visit her while she was working, wondering if maybe there was something going on between her and Sean Connery. In a fit of anger, Stampinado showed up on the set of the film waving a gun around, threatening Turner and warning Sean Connery to keep away from her. Now, how much of this is Hollywood legend and how much is true, I can't say, but the story goes that Sean Connery, a six foot two inch Scotsman and a former bodybuilder, grabbed the gun right out of Stampinado's hand, twisting his wrist and knocking him to the ground with a punch, an action that would have made James Bond proud. And embarrassed Stampinato ran off the set sheepishly. Turner had had enough, and with Armstrong's help, they went to Scotland Yard. With two detectives, they went to the rented house where Stampinato was staying. He was asked to leave the country. The detectives made sure he boarded the plane back to the U.S. Now, Turner's daughter, Cheryl, had very little knowledge of what was going on between the two of them as she was away at boarding school. The first hint she had of trouble was when she went back to England to spend time with her mother. She expected to see Stappanato, but discovered that there had been some trouble and he was sent back to the U.S., but she was never told what happened. Sometime later, when Turner found out she had been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in Peyton Place, she let it be known that only her, Cheryl, and her mother would be going to the show, not Stompin' The four of them had been riding in a car at the time, and Cheryl would say later that things between the four of them became very tense. Sometime later, Cheryl heard the two bitterly fighting, and her mother ended up with a black eye. On April 4th, 1958, Lana Turner was back in the United States attending the Oscars, which uh, she didn't win. Later that night, in her rented home in Beverly Hills, something went on between her, her 14-year-old daughter Cheryl, and Johnny Stampinato. When it was over, Stampanato would be dead, and Cheryl would be accused of murder. At the trial, Lana took the stand. The Times newspaper wrote, She took one white glove off to expose silvered fingernails. She trembled, put her hands to her face from time to time, and fought to control tears that threatened to overcome her. While answering questions, she stared down at her twisting hands or out over the heads of the spectators, as through mumbling the details of an incredible nightmare. She told the story of how, while in London, making the film with Connery, in their hotel, Stampinato had held a razor to her face and threatened to disfigure her. She remembered him saying he'd cut you just a little now to give you a taste of it. On the night of the murder, she testified she had tried to prepare her daughter for what was to come, saying, I'm going to end it with him tonight, baby. It's going to be a rough night. Are you prepared for it? Later, as she tried to end it, she explained, He grabbed me by the arms and started shaking me and cursing me very badly, and saying that if he said jump, I would jump. If he said hop, I would hop. And I would have to do anything and everything he told me to do, or he'd cut my face or cripple me. And if, when it went beyond that, he would kill me and my daughter and my mother. I broke away from his holdings, holding me. I turned around to face the door. And my daughter was standing there, and I said, "'Please, Cheryl, don't listen to any of this. Please go back to your own room.'" Cheryl returned to her bedroom, but Turner testified she could still hear everything. "'Don't ever touch me again. I am—I'm absolutely finished. This is the end. I want you to get out,' Turner said, she told Stompinato. "'I was walking towards the bedroom door, and he was right behind me,' Turner said." I opened it and my daughter came in. I swear it was so fast. I I truthfully thought she had hit him in the stomach. The best I can remember, they came together and then they parted. I never saw a blade. Cheryl stabbed Stompinato in the abdomen with a knife she had gotten from the kitchen, and he quickly died. It didn't take long for the 12-member coroner's jury to quickly reach a unanimous verdict of justifiable homicide. For years after the killing, Cheryl Crane would never talk about what happened. Then, in 1988, she published her autobiography, Detour, A Hollywood Tragedy, My Life with Lana Turner, My Mother. She pretty much confirms the tale her mother told in court. She remembers getting the knife from the kitchen and running upstairs. The way she described it was her rushing towards the bedroom, the knife out in front of her. When she got to the bedroom... Stampinato was leaving. He looked back as he came through the doorway yelling at Turner. His right arm was raised over his head, and Cheryl assumed he was going to hit his mother. It turned out he was actually carrying clothes on a hanger that were over his shoulder, but she couldn't see that. The next thing that happened, the two sort of ran into each other, and the knife plunged into his stomach. Cheryl said she quickly ran back to her bedroom and called her father, and he called the police. This began a nightmare life for the young Cheryl Crane. She was made a ward of the state of California and was placed in the El Retriro School for Girls in Selmira, Los Angeles for psychiatric therapy in March 1960. She had no rights and was given no legal representation. In fact, according to Crane, much of the current laws about how children are treated who have been involved in such situations were changed because of what she went through. The next few years were very troubling with some arrests and allegedly a couple of suicide attempts. But as she moved into adulthood, she came to terms with things and seems to have adjusted well. After years of not talking about what happened, she wrote a book of her experiences and began openly discussing her life. Eventually, she came out as a lesbian, news that both her mother and her father were very supportive of. These days, Cheryl is retired, living in Palm Springs, California, with her longtime companion, Joyce Josh Leroy. Her mother, Lana's career never suffered, even with the media scandal. She continued to work in TV and films. Her last work was in a Love Boat episode in 1985. In all, she was married seven times, none of them lasting more than a couple of years. She later famously said, My goal was to have one husband and seven children, but it turned out the other way around. Turner, a lifelong smoker, was diagnosed with throat cancer in May 1992. She would battle the sickness until it took her life at the age of 74 on June 29, 1995.
1: She said, I don't want you coming downstairs. But if you hear us arguing, that's what it's about. So he gets back there. They have a huge fight. I can hear it. Um, It gets louder. Now I get a little nervous. He said, I'm going to fight have to, I will destroy you, I will destroy your face, I will kill your mother, I will kill your daughter, you will never get away from me. Ran down the stairs, at the bottom of the stairs was the kitchen. I don't know what I was looking for, but I saw a knife on the thing, I picked up the knife, ran back upstairs, and suddenly the door burst open. Mother was there, looking at me, and John was coming toward me. I stepped through the door, he ran into me, and literally ran into the knife. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack.
0: A little bit before I go. It's hard to find a story of interest such as this that doesn't have some sort of conspiracy connected to it. I mean, whether it's 911 or the moon landings, the JFK assassination, or what's inside a Twinkie, there's always going to be those that come up with a version with some sort of cover up or scandal. This story is no different. According to the book, Lana Turner, Hearts and Diamonds Take All by Darwin Porter, Detective Fred Ostish, who died in 1992, admitted before he died that he helped cover up the true story. I was the one who wiped the fingerprints off the knife in Lana's bathroom sink. I was the naughty boy doing what I was not supposed to do, he said. The story goes that Turner caught stampinato and her daughter in bed, sleeping after sex. Stampinato either raped or seduced the 14-year-old. She pulled a knife out of the nightstand, one she kept for protection, and stabbed Stampinato. Then, instead of calling the police, she called her lawyer, Jerry Geisler, and the cover-up began. Geisler urged her to let her daughter take the blame, for, as a minor, she would not have to face a trial. Of course, for this to be true, Stampinato would have had to have been naked during the stabbing and then I assume had to have been dressed to make it look like he was stabbed in his clothes for when the police arrived. And how hard would it have been to get all that blood from out of a bed? I don't know. Another story says that Sean Connery killed Stampinato, and that at some point Connery's hairdresser claims that he confessed to the killings saying that he pinned it on the young Cheryl because he knew she'd get off. Come on now. In fact, in an interview I listened to with Cheryl Crane, she says that's the frustrating part, how these new conspiracy theories keep popping up all the time. And like many of these theories, it's always based on someone who made a deathbed confession or heard from a hairdresser who heard from somebody else a true confession, blah, blah, blah. And at this point, what does Cheryl really have to lose by telling the truth? I mean, her mother killing the man who molested her? I think many parents could understand that. It would almost make for a better book. And now, the podcast I told you I was going to tell you about. It's one that I recently discovered. I think I heard about it from Frank Conniff on the Mads podcast, though I could be wrong. It's called You Must Remember This by Karina Longworth. It's similar to this, but, well, better. And all its stories deal with Hollywood. It's truly a wonderful show, but it's one that I can only listen to on subjects that I've already talked about. I really don't want to be, you know, stealing, even subconsciously. And she does it so much better, I'm bound to steal from her. Anyway, During my research, I noticed that Karina had done an episode on this very subject, and I think I'll listen to it now that this is done. I waited to the end of my show to tell you because I didn't want you turning off my show to listen to hers. But whatever. How about the ending credits? If you could do me another favor, check out the PsyCon Network's Patreon page. You'll find it so simple to make a monthly donation to keep these podcasts going. Please consider helping out. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C S I C O N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? On the latest edition of the Mouseketeers, PsyCon's podcast on massively multiplayer online games, Jen and Tempotastic bring the latest and greatest MMO news from the past week. You can find this and other great shows at PsyCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to, I don't know, complain or just say hi or add something to the show that i've already done i answer every email you can also follow me on twitter my name on twitter is coffee with jeff and i have a coffee with jeff facebook page that you can join your story ideas are always welcome and usually needed if you want to support the show but you don't have the dollars and believe me i understand that then just go over to itunes and leave one of those reviews i was talking about those really help And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Saikon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Thomason for having this podcast on the Saikon Network, my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And, of course, a special shout-out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You folks have a special place in my heart. It's good to be back. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again in two weeks. I promise. Coffee
1: with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff, coffee with Jeff, coffee. coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream, didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff, coffee With Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee or coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with